Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he knows that Ginny Fay is Jetmere's second, but that just begs the question, who's Jetmere's third or fourth or fifth? It's Matt Morgan. So I actually saw an interview. Neil Armstrong said he would not go back to the moon uh, when they asked him why he wouldn't go back. There's like, meh, there wasn't much of an atmosphere there. Hey, uh, I like it when I can keep up with your dad jokes. It's a rare occurrence, but I did manage it that time. It, not everybody has the same curse that I do, or or blessing, depending on who you ask. Uh, a blursing. A blursing. That's what I would call it. That, that a one. A blursing. Uh, there's a lot of buzz about these dad jokes. I, I get it. So. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there, too. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Up next, he's thinking of building a deck around the blitz mechanic because he wants to have the ability every time he plays a creature to sing the blitz Krieg bop. It's Dana Roach. Um, Joey, who's the world's loneliest billionaire? <laughs> it's Elon Musk. Come on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's very, very obvious. That's why he has to buy Twitter, so he can have some friends. I, um, this, <laughs> welcome to the EDH we, Recast. <laughs> uh, we're, we went to the dark side of the moon tonight, ladies and gentlemen. But I do appreciate the Ramones reference there, Joe. You, you, you dug deep for an old band just for me, so thank you very much. He came up with that You're... joke 24 hours ago, so he's had a lot of time to sit on it. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Oh, man. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the EDH RecCast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, can you tell us what we're talking about in this week's episode? I, I guess I can. I can do something related to this episode. So this week, we are going <laughs> to talk about the commanders that have a very linear play pattern among them. Not the not the cards in the 99 and overlapping, but how the commander decks play out every single game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another way to perceive this might be like one-trick pony commanders might be a way that we could describe it, where the, these commanders do kind of sometimes play the same way from game to game to game. And we want to discover some of the commanders that have that similitude in their play patterns. It should be pretty interesting. You just really made that word up. <laughs> similitude? Yeah. I, come on. I Don't lie to our listeners. I didn't. Oh, have you heard of the word verisimilitudinous? Uh, just finish the intros then. I'm moving. To, <laughs> to, to be fair, all words are made up. <laughs> there you go, Dana. There you go. All right. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, we want to thank Chase, aka Manicurs, for helping us with the post-production of the show. Thank you so, so much, Chase. Y'all, we makes the show happen. So huge, huge kudos. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the podcast as well. The EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. They're like if Ren and Siri had partner with Ginny Faye. <laughs> 
Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and then choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you would prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join the Discord community. We have a Game Finder channel where you can just find any pickup games. You can just join our Patreon and you have an instant play group right there. It's just an amazing perk that I think we kind of forget about sometimes, but (laughs) it's a great perk. And you also get to support the show in that process. So head over to patreon.com slash edhretcast for that and more perks that you can get for yourself while supporting the show. And one of those perks also is that coveted weekly shout out for one of our patrons. So this week we want to give a very special shout out to Cameron Eisen. Thank you so much, Cameron, for your support. I hope, and I'm crossing my fingers, maybe you're related to Rich Eisen, one of my favorite reporters out there. But if you're not, (laughs) we still appreciate the support and we're glad you're around. Matt, I love that for every Patreon shout out, you'll always find the a joke I'm sure that they've never, ever heard before. <laughs> I, I, if they have, then good on them. They have a good sense of humor and good people around them to tell them those jokes. <laughs> fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. Okay, let's get into our topic here. We are talking about those commanders that kind of induce some linear play patterns. And right off the bat, we're not saying this as like a qualitative good or bad thing. That's not the point of this. We just want to see which commanders may or may not encourage some similitudinous, even though Matt doesn't think that that's necessarily a word, but it be, it be a word. It's not. Um, <laughs> and also to clarify real quick, like you can make any deck really linear if you put a bunch of tutors into it. So if you've got your demonic tutor, your vampire tutors, your mystical tutors, like those are always going to make a deck linear. So we don't want to look at it as just, you know, oh, these are decks which happen to contain a lot of tutors very often in the 99. We rather want to look at commanders where the way that the commander works pretty much encourages a play style kind of no matter whether it has tutors in the deck or not. And another important distinction we want to make, too, is that this is different from the topic that we talked about a few episodes ago when we talked about niche versus open-ended commanders, where we talked about variants in the 99. But in Mm. this episode specifically, we're talking about how the gameplay of those commanders varies or doesn't vary and and kind of ends up becoming, it's kind of a deck that plays out the same way every single time, Mm. uh, as as Joey put it, kind of the one-trick pony does one thing and it does it really well, but... It only does that one thing every single game. Yeah, a good example is Cadena Slinking Sorcerer. The decks tend to look similar from one player to another because people are, you know, putting those same particular creatures in that deck. But the deck doesn't necessarily play that same way every single game because <laughs> there's a lot of maybe variance in how the deck plays, even though the the cards itself may be relatively similar. Absolutely. Like one person's Cadena deck will probably look a lot like another person's Cadena deck, but like all of those morph creatures, I've, I've played against Kadena decks. I have my, my younger brother plays Kadena and I never know what that deck is going to do. And here's the thing. He also doesn't necessarily know what the deck is going to do because there's so many different things that the deck can do. So it doesn't always play the same way, even if most morph decks do tend to look similar. So yeah, definitely a really good distinction that we want to make there. This is about the commander's play pattern, the experience of playing the deck rather than the cards that show up in the deck. That's a really good distinction for us to make. And Hey, let's get into it. And I'm actually going to start us off here with an example from Streets of New Capenna. We mentioned Ginny Faye, Jetmere's second, but let's actually talk about Jetmere himself, because I think he's a really good example of this concept. Jetmere Nexus of Revels is that Naya cat demon, which is redundant. Cats are always demons. Um, And he has that amazing ability of whenever you have three creatures, your creatures get a buff. Whenever you have six or more creatures, they get a trample buff as well. And if you have nine or more creatures, they get double strike and a super buff. And the play pattern of this deck 
to my eyes, tends to look very, very similar, where you make as many tokens as you possibly can, and then you play Jetmere, and you win. Matt, this seems right up your alley, but it does seem like the kind of thing that would be pretty similar every time you play the deck. Well, putting these types of effects in the command zone, yeah, that's going to make sure that every single game plays out the exact same way. At least your finisher is going to be the same every single game. Yes, you, you can play out your Avenger of Zendikar and have that do different things in different decks, whether you're trying to make a bunch of very big tokens or go wide, whatever you want to do with that. But Jetmere being in the command zone, you build up the army, then you play Jetmere and move to combat, and that's likely the last combat step of the game because it's the last turn of the game. Because <laughs> you're just planning on winning right there. Jetmere's ability is is wickedly potent. So yeah, having that effect in the command zone, we talk about overrun effects and triumph of the hordes and all those different cards that you know are, are finishing moves for any given go wide deck. Putting these in the command zone, and this is probably going to be a theme throughout the episode, I'm guessing too, is putting this finisher effect in the command zone, that's what makes the deck so repetitive is all you do is you, you do step one, and in this case, you build up board, and then step two, you play Jetmere, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, despite Jetmere theoretically giving you a buff if you control three or more creatures or at six or more creatures, for the most part, you're just not going to see Jetmere cast until it wins the game. Right. We're going to build up board, set up, cast Jetmere, and then it's, then it's game over. Um so, so that, I think that's the biggest – I mean, I, I'd hate to use the term problem because it's not necessarily a problem. If you enjoy playing it or people enjoy playing against it, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But that's what causes that particular that, – that static play pattern in this, in this deck because it's unlike a, you know, a token deck where, yes, you're going to swarm and probably go wide and try to win. How you're going to win is going to be different and you're probably going to be playing your commander along the way to move yourself towards that win state. Not in this deck. You are just going to go wide and hit a point where you can play your commander and end things. Um, that's that's what kind of lends things to to be very very static here. Yeah, I don't know if it's egregious to call Jetmir a Craterhoof Behemoth in the command zone, but it does effectively like it tends to be a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, and and contrast this like I have a token deck, I have a Thalese Reverend Medium deck, and like that deck also definitely wants to make a whole bunch of bodies on the board. But the ways that I'll win, I'm not ever sure. Maybe I'll win with a Nadir's Nightblade draining the table, or maybe I will pump up everything to go for a really big attack. And that's a very different style compared to something like Jetmere. Yeah, that's what I think is different here, because in the we've had kind of overrun commanders in the past that you know <laughs> that, that that have an activated ability that buffs your creatures and allows you to do that big swing in. But because of the way those abilities work, you're you're kind of encouraged to play the commander first. Because you have to pump up on a bunch of mana into it to make it work, mm. you can't usually do it as easily in one turn unless you have a crazy amount of mana available. That's just not true here with Jetmere. You just pay your four mana and it's over. That's that's all it takes. <laughs> well, and the crazy part that I, I I'm seeing as we're reading too is it's it's a static effect. You know, if you go from eight creatures to and attack, and then you make a token at instant speed, you change combat math in the middle of combat, which is yep. so crazy because it's a static ability. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, that is, oh, that's where it gets just really silly because you can, even if you're have if somebody's attacking into you, you can create a bunch of blockers that are suddenly, you know, they're not one ones, they're four <laughs> ones and very, very powerful. So blockers, Matt, blockers. What do you mean blockers? This deck doesn't block. <laughs> Jetmere's never on the table when this deck needs to block. Well, Arachnogenesis is a card. You can fog sometimes and make more tokens to then attack because it feeds Jetmere. 
I, I suppose, yeah. It's a card that should be in this deck for the record. Uh, but yeah, no, this this definitely plays out with this deck's uh, data because like Jetmir being the last card you play is so core to what we're seeing in the data for this commander that even famous draw spells like Rishkar's Expertise do not show up in this commander's deck data because it almost never, you, you basically never have a card that has a lot of power in play because Jetmir is rarely ever in play until you're about to win. So yeah, that can kind of cause the deck to funnel down to a very specific play pattern. But I think that's probably enough about the Cat Demon. Matt, what is our next commander that we're talking about that has a pretty linear play style? So the next commander we're going to talk about is one that I had put together for a very long time, and that is going to be Narset Enlightened Master. So in case you haven't seen one at your tables lately, Narset Enlightened Master is the Jeskai commander. It's three and a Jeskai, so a blue, a red, and a white for a 3-2 human monk with first strike and hex proof. And then whenever Narset Enlightened Master attacks, you exile the top four cards of your library, and until the end of your turn, you may cast non-creature spells you exiled with Narset this turn without paying their mana costs. And at first, this card seems... Super cool, super powerful. You can cheat big, crazy spells into play. But then when you get into the execution of that, it just turns into an extra turn stack. <laughs> uh, there, there's very, very little reason to, because if you're attacking with Narset, you're, you're pinging them for three a lot of times, and that just doesn't add up unless you're casting a time stretch and taking 17 turns in a row <laughs> or casting an expropriate for free, because that's never, never good. I've never enjoyed that at all. <laughs> But yeah, the, the deck just very quickly turns into some sort of like hybrid super friends, aka taking all the turns, uh, temporal mastery, time warp, all of those just crazy effects because you're getting seven mana at least for free with every time you attack. So it's just a very, very high power deck, but also very repetitive. In fact, every single turn plays out the same way, not just every game, but every turn. And all the turns are yours. All the turns are indeed yours. Yeah, it, it, the inability to interact with Narset because of the Hexproof, too, mm. leaves you in a position where you feel like once that hits the board and, and the person swings, it's just over. There's an inevitability to that. It, it may be not as quick as Jetmir, but functionally, it's kind of the same thing. I think especially what's fascinating is that Narset has the illusion of being random. Like, you'll flip the top cards. Who knows what you could get? But when your deck is made of that many extra turn spells, you know exactly what you're going to get. And it's going to look the same way every single time. And Matt, to my understanding, the linearity of this playstyle is what caused you to eventually take this deck apart. Yeah, I, I realized... This was probably was the deck, actually, that got me into realizing that I play Commander for the variance. I enjoy the, the randomness and the singleton nature of it because every game's going to play out differently. You never know what you're going to get. Every deck gets to stay a little more fresh that way versus a deck like Narset where every single game plays out the same. You ramp as hard as you can, you cast Narset, and you hope you hit one extra turn spell. And usually after you hit the first one, then the game's just over because you have so many different ways to <laughs> either get more turns or get extra combat steps with cards like Seize the Day. So, yeah, yeah the, the game gets over, not determinately, but effectively it gets over pretty quick. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I can see that linearity of it feeling the same way every time. That can be something that kind of discourages you a little bit if you are looking for that variance. And, and honestly, like actually full confession here, I kind of feel sometimes that same way about my Feather the Redeemed deck. Let's talk about that one for a moment. Feather the Redeemed is the amazing Boros commander that whenever you cast a spell that targets one of your own creatures, that spell will go back to your hand at the end step. And this is an amazing Boros engine. I don't mean to make it sound like I begrudge Feather at all. She's my angel detective. I love her. I love this deck. But I do sometimes have to be in a very specific mood to play it because the engine of the deck is very much, I play Defiant Strike. 
Okay, I play Defiant Strike. Okay, I play Defiant Strike. Okay, I play Defiant Strike over and over again. So even though I can in this deck, I can win in a bunch of different ways. It might be commander damage or I might win with storm payoffs. There's a bunch of different stuff that I could do, but the engine of the deck is the same cards every single turn. And sometimes that does feel pretty darn linear. Yeah, in this case, we've used the, the, the term the same cards. Literally, it's the same card. You're literally <laughs> yeah. playing the same exact card repeatedly. It's not just similar ones. It's the same one over and over. And, and there's also an, an element of the uninteractability we saw with Narset here as well, because there's a lot of the cards in the Feather deck that are the, you know, protection from a color and draw a card or, or things of that nature. Mm. So you find yourself in that position where you're like, we're never going to punch through this. Like it's it's going to require multiple removal spells and everyone's syncing up simultaneously to remove Feather, who will then cost five mana to recast and do it all again. <laughs> like it, it it becomes one of those those puzzles where you feel like once Feather's down and the person's drawn a few cards, there's just no way to turn that corner again. Yeah, if you if you've tuned into twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast, you'll have seen <laughs> every now and then Joey will pull this deck out. And yeah, what Dana said very much applies. It becomes a 3v1 really quickly because if you have one protection spell, that's one protection spell per turn. It always comes back and Mm -hmm. it's the exact same thing. So if the Feather player has two protection spells in hand, it gets increasingly more and more difficult to get rid of that Feather because they're going to be accruing so much value. They're going to have the same protection spells every single turn. And it becomes kind of a, an end boss of, of World of Warcraft where you, you have to kind of raid on the Feather player just so that they don't just curb stomp everybody. Now, here's an interesting thing. Like I, I mentioned once again that Feather has a lot of different ways that it could win. Um which to me, one of the things that would make a deck more linear is if it only has one type of win condition, like we mentioned with Jetmir in combat, you know, early on in the episode, whereas this is a very diverse array of win conditions, but the engine is just so, I guess, repetitive is the word that it really stands out as a linear gameplay. But this doesn't feel the same way to me as other commanders that also will replay the same things like Muldrotha the Gravetide, for example, that commander also plays the same cards out of the graveyard every turn, but that doesn't feel to me like a repetitive or linear engine. I look at a Muldrotha deck and it even when the times that I've played a Muldrotha deck, I don't feel like it ever has exactly the same plan in every single game. It doesn't feel super familiar. And I'm wondering if you guys would feel the same way or if that does feel like it would be um, more of a, a similarity between those. Matt, do you notice the similitudinous or? I, I do, but I also agree that Muldrotha doesn't feel this way because you have access to a lot of cards, but you're not also playing the same cards. You eventually, you have to turn the corner, and it's not the same three spells every single time. Yeah. Uh, if you're playing my old Moldrotha deck, you're playing Implement of Ferocity as often as possible, but that's <laughs> that's not exactly like exciting or game-winning either. But yeah, so just because you have access and the ability to play the same cards, a lot of times Moldrotha turns into a toolbox type of deck. So you're finding different answers to find any given situation. So you might see those answers in a, a, a fair or a high percentage of your games, but you're not leaning on that win condition every single time either. So I, I do get what you're saying here, Joey. I would say with the Muldrotha decks too, there, there feels like there's an intent to most of your decisions that you're made. And they are decisions. You're like choosing, okay, I, I you know, technically you can cast a lot of things from the graveyard, but like usually you don't have the mana to do all of those things. Mm. So you're trying to make choices. You, there's, there's just not like, 
you know, yeah, you have a reclamation sage maybe, but maybe there's not enough mm-hmm. juicy reclamation sage targets every turn to play it and sacrifice it and, and, and play it again. Whereas with that feather deck, you are kind of encouraged to use all of the mana you have to recast that same spell repeatedly before <laughs> it comes back to you to draw as many cards as you can. So I think that is the difference. I, th- I think you're making a few more choices in the Moldrotha deck and maybe not making choices. In the feather deck, you are just encouraged to just keep doing that loop as much as you possibly can. Yeah, that, that does make sense. One card alone can totally pull all the engine, all of the weight for feather. Um, whereas Moldrotha, you know what? This actually might be another thing that kind of converges between the various ability of gameplay, but also the lessened variability within the 99. I would suspect that a lot more Feather decks have a lot in common with each other than Muldrotha decks have a lot in common with each other. And that might also be kind of another convergence that adds another layer of the similitudinous. Matt, I'm going to keep saying that word. because You're I'm, just going to dri- drive it into the ground. But yeah, yeah I, I, like, <laughs> I like the point that we're, we're making here and the distinction between these two fairly popular commanders because... Yeah, so you, you'll find one feather turn, and that's your turn for the rest of the game. Yeah. That's not exactly the same for Muldrotha. You'll have different turns, because, but you might have the same pool of cards to play from, whereas feather has, like, you, you find your turn four play, and that's also your turn five, six, seven, until yes. the end of eternity. Yes, absolutely. Hey, you know what? Actually, bonus shout out here. If we're going to talk about things where your turn four play is also your turn five, six, seven play, Rat Colony? persistent petitioners <laughs> dragons approach like yep every turn looks the same with those because your deck is full of a bunch of repeated cards so like honorable mention to those guys <laughs> now I, I we do need to give some credit to the rats and the persistent petitioners decks sometimes the one percenters do have a thrumming stone so sometimes they get to throw <laughs> that out there and that that's a little bit of a curveball fair enough another commander that has a pretty linear place place that was prime speaker vanifar who is basically a creature that's a birthing pod oh yeah <laughs> um, I, I think at this point everyone knows what a, what a pod chain is there's a specific creature you're going to sacrifice to go get a different one that you know you're going to be able to use to untap vanifar and do the whole thing over again running up your chain to hit to the particular combo that you're going to use to win um and this isn't necessarily unique to vanifar Basically, any commander that can tutor from the command zone is going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking from personal experience, way back when Yasan Wanderer Bard was first released in, I think it was M14, uh, I I had wanted to build a mono green deck, so I had built Yasan. Um, eventually, that became my recce deck after I realized Yasan literally played the way every, the same way every time. Mm. You kind of got a pod chain going. You would go get this thing that would protect you to get to this thing, to get to this thing. Uh, and at first, I was like, oh, I'm just going to get up to eventually Crater Hoof and I will win the game. But it became apparent along the way that that's not what it was. You didn't have to get to Crater Hoof to win the game. Once you got to Seenbard Muse, you knew you were going to get to Crater Hoof to win the game. And then <laughs> once you got to, I forget even the sequence of creatures, the one before that, the one before that, that could protect. Like, eventually, I just very quickly figured out the line to get up to that Crater Hoof as fast as possible. And it played the same way every single time. And that was before we even had like smart CEDH people finding optimal ways to play that deck. That was just me casually doing it. And I found out ways to do it. People playing competitively have found much more effective ways <laughs> that are probably also pretty linear. So that's one that at least for me really jumps out as an example of a, a tutor commander that played the same way quite literally every single time I had the deck out. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Especially because when you are playing any game competitively, the idea will be to reduce the amount of variance in your deck. So I can see this being very appealing, finding the lines. But yeah, no matter how you're building these types of commanders, anything that tutors, no matter where you're aiming, there is going to be a linearity to the playstyle because you will, just by dint of playing it, find what your best targets are, even if you don't want it to be a combo deck. Frankly, I would throw Captain Sisse into this category too, because that one can tap to tutor for any legend in your deck. While playing it, you're going to know what your best legends are, and you're probably going to find the same one, two, or three every single game. So you'll see them a lot. So the deck will start to feel a little bit like the previous game that you played with it, too. Or uh, what's the tutoring dragon, the five-color Tiamat? That one, when it, when it enters, you search your deck for five dragons. Most likely, you'll know what the five dragons are that you want to go get. And you'll, but by the way the commander works, you'll see those same things every single game. This does actually make me wonder, Dana, you have a mono white super friends Jeru with eyes open deck and the ability of that commander also tutors your deck for a planeswalker. I assume that you know what the first planeswalker or first couple of planeswalkers that you would go and tutor with that deck would be. Does that feel to you like a deck that plays pretty much similar from game to game or because it's super friends is there maybe variability there with the play style where does that one fall amongst this tutor category um the, the first target is almost always um baby karn because it's one of the few <laughs> ways to draw cards in white essentially so i'll go grab four mana karn pretty quickly but after that it's very wide open okay because you're playing mono white planeswalkers there's just not a lot of like things you can go get that are going to radically change the face of the game immediately and win. <laughs> I can go grab something like Elspa Sun's Champion and start putting tokens in the field, but I mean that's not necessarily going to win the game for quite a few turns. I can go grab a Gideon if I'm worried about someone killing me and make the emblem that keeps people from killing me. So like it becomes much more toolboxy after I get that first card. Nice. So I, I do want to give an honorable mention then to, to a couple of commanders that we, we've kind of t joked about them on episodes prior, but Marilyn of the Morn Song and Sadisi Undead Vizier, uh, <laughs> the ad nauseum kind of meme combo decks uh, that you see where the, the typical deck is playing 60 lands. Um, for those of you who don't know, there was an old, old combo deck where you basically ramp and on turn five, you either get your commander or ad nauseum and you draw your whole deck and then you, you find... Um, some silly way to win like sickening dreams or something like that. <laughs> so it's intentionally meant to be kind of a silly meme deck that only does one thing, but it does it very, very well. If that's your jam, it's kind of a, a one and done for me. But if, if that's what brings you joy, then uh, man, it, it's, it's a very silly way to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah. This, this, these whole any commander that searches for a thing. I mean, you don't even need tutors in the ninety nine. We know that those are going to be pretty linear. But again, sometimes that's the appeal. Like I said, with my feather deck, I'm not. I mean, I don't play it as often. I do find myself not reaching for that deck first and foremost whenever I want to play because Matt, like you, for me, the appeal of commander is often found in that variability. I don't know what's going to happen. And feather, I do tend to know what's going to happen with it. But still, sometimes that's really what you're in the mood for. So like these can all be super fun again this is not a value judgment that we're placing on any of these but sometimes that does affect the uh, mood that you're in to play some of these or how often you play them or the ways that you play them and that's just a thing that we want to be mindful of and keep note of we have a few more examples that we want to get to as well but 
You know, fellas, how about we throw a little bit of linearity in here too, because every episode, we always challenge the stats. There's so much data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes I think that cards see too much or too little play, so we love to challenge those statistics. Matt, would you mind starting us off this week? What's our challenge? Yes, I'll, I'll get us started here. So my pick this week actually comes from a listener who went to patreon.com slash edhretcast and joined our discord community where we have a challenge specifically for submitting challenges for challenges stats so crystal who smiles at death submitted this pick this week and they said uh, i have a challenge today that hopefully is illustrative of a common deck building pitfall so agnes the dragon's lash which for those who don't know is the riveteer or for us paper boomers the jund colored uh, <laughs> legendary creature from streets of new capenna uh, so agnes the dragon's lash is the three three haste tribal deck uh, where it's a Vaishino warrior with haste, and then whenever a creature you control with haste attacks, you create a tapped treasure token. So Crystal goes on to say the haste tribal commander from New Capenna quickly has over 600 decks to their name, and anger is appearing in 63% of those decks, which I think is way too high. Agnes wants you to have a critical mass of creatures that naturally have haste, and anger is going to be redundant on average, but also has to be in a very specific place. They think that deck slot is better suited for many other cards, which I definitely agree with. And this is a really good point by Crystal, where a lot of times people will sign up for a, a very specific mechanic, and they'll dial in on a card that maybe they don't really need, or is maybe too specific to help. So I agree. Anger has to be in the graveyard to give all your creatures haste, which means it's vulnerable to grave hate, which is very common in the format. Mm. But also there are lots of other haste enablers too. Uh, Fires of Yavimaya is one of the most played types of cards in these color combinations to give all your creatures haste. It's an enchantment, so it's harder to mess with. I just think that there's a lot of different ways that you can give haste to all of your creatures without requiring a specific card to be in a specific place. So I really like this pick. Uh, Crystal points out that 63% of Agnes decks so far are playing Anger, and I think that's a really good call where people focus so much on a certain keyword that they want that they forget maybe there are better options for this or that are easier to have turned on. So Crystal, this is a great catch. So if you're building those Agnes Dragons Lash decks, maybe reconsider playing anger in Agnes. And and frankly, like, I mean, if you're making a lot of tokens and those tokens need the haste, then I can see maybe having extra haste enablers. But if you aren't making extra tokens and already every single creature in your deck already has haste, a haste enabler is probably like the last thing that you need for your deck. So yeah, this makes sense to me. This really makes sense to me. So Dana, how about you? What's your challenge this week? Uh, my challenge is for a card, Nature's Claim. It's in 90,000 decks on EDH Rec. Uh, EDH Rec, for those who don't recall, is an instant in green for a single green mana. Destroy target artifact or enchantment, and its controller gains four life. Nature's Claim is a fantastic card, um, especially in more competitive circles where being able to only have to spend a single green mana to stop a potentially game-winning artifact or enchantment is a really, really big deal. I don't think there are 90,000 decks playing at a power level where it's worth sacrificing the power of running a different artifact or enchantment removal piece is worth that trade for efficiency. Um, and this is something I've noticed in my personal play, both at my shop, even in a little bit online, where I've seen people playing decks that aren't playing at that competitive level and aren't playing that fast and don't need the level of efficiency 
and they are sacrificing the utility that would come with, say, a return to nature to, to also hit a graveyard for one more mana, mm. or a Deglamour or a Revel the Aether that lets you <laughs> do all kinds of stuff to cards I love. I, I appreciate um, efficiency in, in magic, and you should look to be efficient in your deck because it allows you to do more things. But with efficiency comes a trade-off very often. You are giving up utility many times for some of that efficiency. Um, and one of the things we've seen in recent years, we've talked about it a lot, is the three mana rocks that they put out in the last the last two years, say three years, mm. that have gotten much better than they once were, where now you're kind of forced in a lot of cases to choose between that efficiency versus the utility. I think nature's claim is an example where I think people are still too often sacrificing the utility for efficiency in decks where where utility is way more valuable than a little bit of efficiency. So nature's claim is a fantastic card. Don't get me wrong, but I think more people need to take a look at whether or not it's fantastic in their deck or, or if they wouldn't be better served spending one more mana to get a little more utility. I fully, as soon as you said the opening words of your challenge, Dana, I was like, this boy is about to tell me his secret challenge is actually Deglamour and Unravel the Aether. <laughs> kind <laughs> that's of, what, kind That's of. what's going on here. This boy is telling me a personal story that he had where he had a nature's claim that couldn't get rid of the indestructible Blightsteel, that couldn't get rid of the Krufix God of Horizons across the battlefield. But this is how he found his love for those, instead, the enchantment and artifact removals that shuffle into the into the library, uh, which yes. does answer a lot of various different things. So I knew that you were secret challenging those cards really with this, and I love it. I had a friend years ago with the Perforos deck, and I shuffled that card in his library so many times before they, before they changed that shuffle rule. Yes. This is a really interesting choice. Yeah, no, like observing when you could use the flexibility and stuff like that. And I am personally hitting that point too, where I'm like, oh, de-glamour. It's just one of Dana's pet cards. But no, I'm actually looking at my own decks now. I'm just like, I think I might need a de-glamour in this deck because I'm running into more and more indestructible stuff and I need variable answers for that. And my destroy effects aren't working all that well. Dang it. Do I have to admit that Dana is right on the podcast? Oh, this is going to embarrass me so, it's just so bad. <laughs> it feels bad. I, I, I feel, whenever you're right, Joey, I feel the same way. <laughs> and I support you both. Dang, that's so funny. All right, I'll move now to my challenge here. And my challenge is kind of a, this is an uphill climb, but bear with me, everyone, because I know that Yarok the Desecrated is a commander that has a lot of of deck data on EDHREC, nearly 6,000 decks, I think, but I am going to challenge a card that isn't appearing on Yarok's page at all. And again, there are so many cards that could go into a Yarok deck, so it is hard to make challenges on commanders that are this popular and this versatile. But I do think that the card Phantom Steed is potentially worth a look if you're playing Yarok, and especially if you're playing Yarok on a budget, because this card does some wacky stuff in that deck. Phantom Steed is a four mana horse illusion, a four three with flash. It's a blue card, and when it enters the battlefield, you exile another target creature you control until Phantom Steed leaves the battlefield. And because of Yarok's ability, that would happen two times. You would get two of those triggers. But here's the thing that is especially interesting. Whenever Phantom Steed attacks, you create a tapped and attacking token that is a copy of the exiled creature, except it's an illusion in addition to its other types, and then that token goes away at the end of combat. So the play pattern basically that could happen here is that you play the Phantom Steed with Yarok in play, and let's say you have a Reclamation Sage and, I don't know, a Menglehorn in play. Phantom Steed would allow you to exile both of those things because you are doubling up the ETB trigger. And then when you attack with Phantom Steed, 
you would get the ability to put both the Reclamation Sage and the Manglehorn in play, and then Yorok would double up their triggered abilities. And this is actually kind of confusing at first, because it looks like Phantom Steed would only let you put one copy of one of the exiled things into play, but according to, and I'm not joking here, y'all, rule 607.3, if an ability performs any actions with the, it performs the action on each exiled card, rather than if it performs actions on, quote, a exiled card. This is confusing. I don't expect anyone to follow along with that, but my point is that the Phantom Steed interaction here works. So this can save two of your creatures, and it can pump out a copy of each of those creatures every turn, and those creatures will get repeated effects over and over again. You can even use this thing to save your board, which I think is really fascinating. This card just doesn't show up on Yarok's page at all, and if all of that sounded complicated but fun to you, then I just encourage y'all playing Yarok to look at this one a little deeper. I had no idea that worked that way, probably at least in part, because I don't know if I've ever seen Phantom Steed actually cast in a game. Yeah, Dana, honestly, that's fair. Like, can you even tell me what uh, set this card comes from? Because I didn't know until I looked at the set symbol myself. So. I, I, I can just because I've played D&D once upon a time, so I knew it was a D&D creature. So Dang. Forgotten Realms it has to be. But if, if it wasn't for that, I probably would not have known. You outsmart me once again, Mr. Roach. How <laughs> dare you? Okay, let's get back to talking about some of those commanders that encourage linear playstyles. Matt, uh, do you have another example for us? What's another commander where the deck tends to play out more or less the same from game to game to game? Well, I have one, actually, that Dane and I both built uh, for some... Actually, I think, Joey, you might have as well, actually. Um, but Edgar Markov is a commander that... Literally every single game plays out the same way. And probably a lot of these eminence commanders in general might fall under this this uh, umbrella because mm. they're doing their thing from the command zone. You don't even have to cast them. And I, I think I've seen Edgar Markov cast maybe twice ever. But Edgar Markov was the vampire tribal back from one of the commander pre-con sets a few years ago uh, for three in Mardu, so a red, white, and a black. And it has the eminence ability of whenever you cast another vampire spell, if Edgar Markov is in the command zone or on the battlefield, you create a 1-1 black vampire creature token. And Edgar also has other texts, but nobody ever cares about it. Uh, <laughs> but the big, the big reason is because with this eminence ability, you're kind of incentivized to play all the one and two mana, very low to the ground and aggressive vampires that we got over the years. Mm. And you're playing roughly the same thing. Your, your win condition is just a critical mass of creating so many vampires that people have to, you know, they just can't keep up with it. And all the while, Edgar Markov is just sitting in the command zone, accruing you so much value. And you might even say the same for Aloro uh, decks, anything that has the eminence ability. A lot of folks give or take may not love the eminence abilities but that also means that yeah these these decks they all play out the same they're all hyper aggressive these edgar markov decks just flooding the board of vampires yeah i mean that was exactly my same experience as well man I, I think we both went through the same thing at the same time i remember when that card was released and us like theater crafting back and forth about you know best way to play it, what cards would, would be good and we were both so hyped we built that list and like 10 days maybe both of us were like well we're done with that <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> Oh, no. I, I think I kept mine a little bit longer than that. But for me, the thing that I noticed is that the deck was a lot more powerful than I wanted it to be. But, you know, Matt, you had mentioned that a lot of Eminence commanders might feel this way. And you used Olero as an example. I think I might personally disagree there. I think that a life gain deck does have a bit more, like, I don't know if a life gain deck is going to win with a Felidar Sovereign or an Aetherflux Reservoir or a Sanguine Bond. Um, so, like, that deck 
Here, here's, I think, the difference, actually. It's how long the game goes. Olero will have a longer game, so a lot more can happen. But an Edgar Markov deck is so aggro, so low to the ground, so speedy, that there's not enough time for different things to mm -hmm. happen. Yeah, that, that's the big thing is it, you you cram so much into such a short time span with these games that, yeah, you, you don't get a chance to do much else because the game's already over by the time you've played, you know, turn six. Yeah, maybe even other aggro commanders like Perforos or Krenko might fall into this as well for maybe the same reasons. And like those are really fun commanders to play as well. But like it's such a short amount of time that the same you know, only only four or five turns get to happen. So they tend to look similar to each other compared to games that will go on like 10 turns. I, I think that might be a key difference there to, to key into. Yeah, that definitely makes sense for sure. Yeah, very much. And you know what? Actually, speaking of vampires and speaking of vampires from pre-cons, how about uh, Miss Angie? How about Anya Falconrath? Like, that is the madness commander. And I think everyone really quickly realized that the way that people tend to build this deck is not by actually casting any of the madness cards, but by simply using Anya Falconrath as a engine to discard the madness card and then immediately she untaps and draws you a new card so then you can discard another card that has madness and she'll do it all over again like that deck is definitely the same way every time because what you do is step one play commander step two draw discard draw discard draw discard draw discard draw discard draw discard and there are different payoffs for each of those draw discards but that also feels a bit like feather that we mentioned earlier where the engine is so potent and so similar and doing the exact same action over and over again that i think that that probably falls into the same camp uh, yeah you know to a degree even it reminds me of and i think we'll probably next <laughs> talk about voltron decks but um it, it reminds me a little bit of even why i quit playing my Sigarda deck that was an enchantress list it wasn't doing that draw discard draw discard thing but it was kind of doing the play an enchantment draw four cards play an enchantment draw four cards thing <laughs> uh and in that case yes you're suiting up cigar and she's gonna one shot somebody but it still led to really kind of repetitive play patterns there because instead of drawing down to your combo you're drawing down to well you know battle mastery or whatever enchantment that you're going to use, you know, maybe it's Ancestral Mask, whatever, that's going to just let you kill somebody mm. and then possibly kill multiple people, depending on, you know, if you're suiting something else up along the way. So very similarly, even though I guess it wasn't going to a combo, that deck did something very similar to how Angie plays, where it's just that kind of loop of, 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 of drawing down to a thing every single game. Well, and, and Angie Falconrath too is probably the, the, the Venn diagram crossover between this episode where the deck plays the same every single game, but also every single deck looks the same because you <laughs> sure. only have like 45 madness cards. So you have to play all of them in order to get down to the cards that you really want. Yeah, there's a lot of Venn diagrammatical crossover there. I can totally see it. Dana, though, your comparison to Voltron, I think, is really apt and not even just for enchantress forms of Voltron. I think that this is also probably a fair assessment to make of equipment decks as well or really any Voltron like Bruna Light of Alabaster decks like those decks also have one mission. They play commander and then they go smash and you kind of have to by the way that those decks work you're all in on commander damage you are putting all of your eggs into one basket so your backup win conditions don't tend to be 
as important, or in some cases, you may not even carry backup wind conditions. Like, what other creature is going to carry all of your equipment better than your commander that only has to deal 21 points of damage? So that can encourage the same lines of play in every game. I think that's a really good point. So one other commander that actually has pretty much an exact same carbon is copy paste copy paste copy paste game plan or gameplay i should say is a sararak a sazerac whatever this beverage is that you can play in your command zone that's not a word you're coming to me for similitude and you're saying a sazerac come on you're the one making up words now mr morgan so listen here joseph you put the show <laughs> notes together and i'm reading the card you put in here so on that note a sararac the arch lich which is from adventures of the forgotten realms it's two and a black for a legendary zombie wizard it's a five five and while or when a sararac the arch lich enters the battlefield if you haven't completed tomb of annihilation which is one of the dungeon cards that you can com- uh, complete from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, return a Sararak the Archlich to its owner's hand and venture into the dungeon. And then whenever a Sararak attacks for each opponent, you create a 2-2 black zombie creature token unless that player sacrifices a creature. Now, there's a lot of different things going on here that I'm guessing Joey understands because he's the one <laughs> that put the Sazerac onto the uh, the show notes. The show notes. So, Joey, take it from here. Oh yeah, honestly, the last paragraph of a Sazerac I forgot was even on this card because that's not how this deck plays. This deck, you just cast a Sazerac all the time over and over again because it self bounces. So you get a cost reducer like Bantu's Monument or Jet Medallion. And now suddenly this guy only costs one mana to play and it keeps on returning to hand as long as you don't complete the Tomb of Annihilation, which you never will. So you can just go through any of the other dungeons for every time you pay one mana, one mana, go through the dungeon, one mana, go through the dungeon over and over and over and over and over again. Honestly, this kind of even reminds me a little bit of Bouncy House Oketra decks as well. And that's the commander that uh, whenever you play a creature, you get to make a 4-4 zombie. And frequently what you'll do is play, you know, a creature that self-bounces over and over again, like a white mane lion, for example, that returns itself to your hand. So these, again, are the kinds of decks where you play the same card multiple times over and over and over again. And in the case of a Sararak, the entire deck is constructed that way. And um, Matt, I'm, I'm glad that we know now that its name is not made up and that it is very, very real. Dana, does this bring back D&D memories for you? <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't. I, I played well enough to to know uh, a creature. I didn't play well enough to know the lore in Forgotten Realms. So I uh, know this does not bring back any memories for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, th- that's just another good one to shout out there, which I think that like, again, that sounds like a really cool type of deck, but it will be the same strategy every single game, which again is not a bad thing, but you know, it's definitely worth noting. This does all though, now that we've talked about a bunch of those different examples, this does beg the question for me, if there are commanders that to you guys feel the opposite of this, like what are some commanders that maybe come to mind as we're rounding out the show? Are there any examples you would give of commanders with highly variable gameplay instead of being linear? Like when you sit down to play the deck, Matt, is there a commander that you just have no idea what's about to happen when you play it? Uh, so the commander that immediately jumps out to mind, for me at least, is Ramos Dragon Engine. Because if you look at the typical deck, it's just a pile of charms. It's literally <laughs> modal spells as far as the eye can see, which 
that's all well and good. Like you may see the same cards over and over again, but you're more than likely are never picking the same modes more than once every five or six games, which mm-hmm. means, yes, you have the same ni- cards in the 99, but every single game is going to play out so differently just due to the cards that you're playing. Like, sure, Ramos gets a lot of plus one, plus one counters and can go on the, the beat stick plan if you really, really want to. But to get there, you're casting four different charms every given turn and choosing different modes every single time. So I think this deck, if you want something that's never going to have the same experience more than once, mm. Ramos charms is probably one of the silliest things that you can be doing, but also like the most fun way to have a different experience, even though you never change a card in the deck. That's rad. Dana, what about you? What's an example that comes to mind? Um, uh, for, for commanders that I've played against that, that seem to play the the weirdest I, i've played against more than a few um tiana ships caretaker decks um that was a commander from back in dominaria um angel whenever an aura or equipment is put into your graveyard from the battlefield you may return the card to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step that seems like it will be fairly obvious but it's not people tend to lean into one or the other auras or equipment and what they're doing or why they're putting them in the graveyard tends to be really different too hmm. um so that's that's one where like I remember seeing Tiana thinking that might actually be quite linear, and the you know the the handful of Tiana decks I've played over the years have almost exclusively played different from one another, which I which I was pretty impressed by. That's an interesting one. I think since we've been talking a handful of times about D and I actually want to shout out one. Maybe you do know the lore on this one, Dana Xanathar, the Guild Kingpin, which is the blue black commander that steals from the top of opponents' decks. And for that matter, I'll also shout out Gonti as well because the, that Lord of Luxury there is going to also take cards from the top of your opponent's decks. The entire plan of the deck is to acquire cards that don't even belong to you. You're trying to take other people's cards, and you have no clue what it is that you're going to get so you have to adjust your game plan on the fly if you are going to succeed with those strategies you really never know what you're actually going to get with any of those decks and so that strikes me as a deck where when you sit down to play it you don't know what's going to happen but you know that you're going to be powerful while you're doing it because hopefully your opponents brought some powerful cards of their own yeah the, the decks that do things based on your opponent's deck tend to really be variable so that that's a really good call joey yeah, there's so much chance that happens when it comes to what your opponents will do or what they'll bring. I mean, heck, goad decks actually probably fit into this category as well. Like Thantis the Warweaver making your opponents attack all of the time. The battlefield will look different every single turn because you are encouraging action from your opponents and you're like you are forcing them to attack and you know that that part is reliable, but you don't know where they're going to point all of that damage. That is a thing that is always up in the air. So, yeah, I definitely think that that type of interaction is a really good recipe for finding stuff that will stay fresh, new, exciting, and weird from game to game to game. Y'all, this was a really, really fun episode to go over. I wonder if this is a loaded question, but like, you know, Dana, when it comes to linearity or variability, Matt and I have already said that we enjoy the variance that comes with Commander. Is this a thing that you also really enjoy, or are there linear decks in your arsenal that you really enjoy playing as well? Like, I just want to take one last read of the room before we take off on where you fall necessarily. What appeals to you most? I definitely have have a linear deck or two in my arsenal, but I much prefer playing the ones that are really open-ended that can win me games different ways every single time. That absolutely is what makes a deck an attractive thing. Um, I, I just guested on the um, Fairy Conclave podcast a few weeks back talking about my, my Veil of the Nightclad deck. And, and one of the things I stressed on that show about what I loved with the deck was 
it just won in different ways every single time. Sometimes it was with, you know, Tezzerits that dealt damage based on the amount of artifacts I had. Sometimes it was just creature beats because my artifact creatures were unblockable. Sometimes it was with a bunch of tokens that I made that I could mass sacrifice to Vela and do damage to everyone at once. The deck just won in a bunch of different ways, and that is what really made it stand out to me. So yeah, the the, the high variance is very important to me for sure, in, in at least getting enjoyment out of playing a deck. Dana, that's awesome. And folks, I recommend that podcast, Fairy Conclave. They're really, really cool. And you may or may not see some other... Uh, well, I guess you won't see familiar faces, but Chase and I have <laughs> also hear. been guests on. Yeah, you'll hear familiar faces if you tune into their podcast. There we go. Yeah, Matt, we got you're you're up next. But actually, Matt, you know, the same question kind of goes to you. Are there linear decks that you really enjoy playing or is variance always a thing that you're searching for? Where does that appeal ultimately fall for you? I do prefer the variants. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that's why I took my Narset Enlightened Master deck apart because uh, mm. it didn't have any variants. But I do have a couple that kind of do have the same game plan. Valduck Keeper of the Flame is obviously one that falls into that Voltron category where I'm souping one creature up and that creature happens to be in the command zone. And I'm just trying to see how much damage I can do before I have to pay five mana to cast it again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I do have a couple decks that are fairly linear, but then I have a couple decks that really embrace the variance my vivictus as Madi the dire deck oh that one is all about the variance how how crazy and, and random can we get with that so i'm all over the place with my decks uh, i do enjoy every now and then in small doses a, a linear deck but for the most part i tend to embrace the this random singleton nature of the format because that's kind of why we play this format if we wanted to play the same game every time i would still be playing modern and, and pioneer so yeah i i prefer just the the singleton and random nature of the 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 commander format i i love that and also i can't believe that it took us until the last minutes of the podcast to mention Vivictus. You're right. That one is super. I have no idea what's going to happen. You're chaos warping all over the place, including yeah. your opponents and your own stuff. Oh, that's a perfect pick. That's a perfect one, Matt. There you go. You win. You win. You are the similitude-ness. You, you did it. You did it. Wouldn't this be anti-made up, up word? Yeah. Wouldn't this be the anti-similitude, whatever the made up word is, because <laughs> it's not doing the same thing? I okay, still don't know what that word means, so I'm just going along with it. <laughs> We've been incepted now. You may have caught me. You may have caught me red-handed, but it is it is a word. I just might not know how to use it. I think that's the lesson that we've learned. I, I'm noticing that. So why don't we just wrap up before we make up even more words for this, this show here? That we shall. We will call this episode to a close. And fellas, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. We have guests on every single week, and it's always a super amazing time. So make sure you tune in because the guests always just, man, it's it's so great getting to, to play games with folks again. And um, that's where we do a lot of it, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. Mm -hmm. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on other podcasts, CMDR Central. Uh, I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production work on the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And we want to thank our sponsors at TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we would love to hear from you about commanders that you have in your arsenal 
arsenal that are highly variable or highly linear, we would love to hear from you. And we will be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.